This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Sometimes it takes a 9-11 type of situation. I don't know if that dates me even saying 9-11 anymore. I'm assuming many of you would know what I mean by that. But when uh, airplanes hit the World Trade Center uh, and the Pentagon, it has a tendency to stir us as a nation. And suddenly people, I mean, even radio broadcasts and news reports are saying, please pray. Pray for these people in these buildings. I mean, news people are saying that. I mean, what's going on in our country? You're not allowed to talk about that any other time, but if there's a crisis, then our, our, we start talking about it. I always catch the irony, believe me, because prayer is a big part of my life every day. So I always think it's strange that we start praying when there's crisis. I figure we should pray before the crisis. How about to stem the crisis? But sometimes it takes extreme things to awaken us. And one of my desires is that it will not take an extreme thing to awaken us as the church. I do not, what we do in here is not necessarily the historic church. Just gathering in a big building and hearing a person talk about the truth is not necessarily anti-historical Christianity. It's just not the fullness of it. The fullness of it is a body that is functioning, not just waiting for someone to speak truth to them, but they are enlivened to speak truth to a dying world. It's our job to be the church, and it's our job to not try and just bring people in here to hear truth, but to go out into a world that doesn't know truth and speak it to them. And as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, my desire is to stick a fire into each soul to say, go, do, and yet I am unable to do this in a human sense. This needs to be a work of grace, a work of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a certain feudal feeling sometimes. However, one of the things I want to do afresh today in this message is point us to the fuel source. I want to, in a sense, turn all of our gaze to that which can do this. Many of you, if I were to ask you, do you want to be a burning flame for Jesus Christ? Do you want to be fully alive? I would say a high percentage of you in here actually desire it. And the impediment, what is that impediment? Well, we so easily slide into our comforts. We so easily self-justify and say, yeah, tomorrow I'll do that. I just want us to ratify in our souls the reason why we're here and not wait for a plane to crash into a World Trade Center to say, I'm here for a short period of time on this earth. I have one life to live, and I want to live it fully for Jesus Christ. I do recognize that this will cost me everything. We were talking in our, in our pastor's staff meeting this last week about the term, I didn't sign up for this. Almost every single one of us has probably said those words at some point in time. It's a famous line that the enemy feeds us. I didn't sign up for this. And that's the, that's the clue that you're about to leave the room, that you're about to depart. I have so many things in my life that I get the enemy saying, yeah, you didn't sign up for that, Eric. 
You didn't sign up for that. Walk away from that. Get out of the mess. You don't want to be in the dirtiness of this world. Come on. You didn't sign up for this. Pause right there in each of your souls. Are you a Christian? Have you covenanted with the living God? Till death do you part. For the glory of him and him alone. You did sign up for this. You did sign up for a life of bearing a cross in order that you may bear his glory. And it's in and through those trials, in and through those difficulties, when we face them with the grace that we've been given, that God is seen more clearly than you being happy in good times. It's those very challenges we face in this life that actually are the release valve for that glory picture in this generation. We did sign up for this. Let's embrace it. Let's not grumble and complain. Let's move forward with the moxie of the Holy Spirit today. The language of humility, a study in the remarkable makeup of the Word of God. For many of you in here, this is, this is almost like a good old-fashioned Bible college lesson on how the Bible is built and made up. However, I don't just like giving facts about things, even though that is going to be a framework here. We're going to talk about the remarkable makeup of the Word of God. However, I want this to come to a practical dimension of our life of recognizing that there is a pattern known as the Word of God. The Word of God. What is the Word of God? Because some of us immediately jump to the fact that, oh, it's the Bible. It is. It is. That's called Scripture. The Word of God in text is called Scripture. But the Word of God is an idea that is a revelation. It is that which God has revealed. that which shows forth that which is invisible. And so Jesus is also the Word of God, but he's the Word of God in flesh or in person. And so when the Word of God becomes text, it's called Scripture. When the Word of God becomes person, it's Jesus Christ. When the Word of God goes to work and does something to save us, it's called the cross. And so we oftentimes at Ellerslie say the Word of God in text reveals the Word of God in person. And what that Word of God in person came to do was to do some action. And that triumvirate, or that three parts of the Word of God, in text, in person, and action, is where we put our faith. We rest it solely there. There is a building, a, a construction process that God has gone through very strategically with His divine mind to reveal something to us, to bring us the Word of God. The Word of God has come to us. It has been revealed to those of us in this room. We have seen it. We have beheld its glory, and we have believed in it, and we're saved. This is how Christianity works. And so what I want to do is I want to go back into more the framework of this, because when you begin to study how the Bible itself, the 66 books of Scripture, are compiled, you begin to realize, huh, it reveals something. It reveals something very specific, and I have already given it away, but I'll just say it now, because it's not like it's a hidden aspect to this message. It reveals Jesus. It reveals the Word of God in person. And what else? It reveals what that Word of God in person was going to do. And guess what? To us, when we have the New Testament, you know what it also reveals? What that Word of God did. So in the Old Testament, it says, this is what the Word of God, when he comes, will do. And then we're looking from the other side going, and he did it. And it's called the good news. He did it. God revealed it. He spoke it ahead of time. He promised it would happen. And guess what? It did. The reasonable response is, I'm a believer. And when you're a believer, you're changed by the word of God. 
So the language of humility is going to be very, very important in this because there's a battle over the Word of God. And ironically, many people today that are Christians that handle the Word of God, that spend a lot of time in the Word of God, are anything but humble. Isn't that the most hilarious, well, it's not hilarious, sad reality and irony that could be in existence? Some of the headiest high-mindedness is associated with religion and ironically, with Christianity. But that was the way it was with Jesus, too. When Jesus came to this earth, what did he find? He ran into proud men that knew the scriptures, and they rejected him. How could you know the scriptures and reject Jesus? That doesn't even make sense. It, tomorrow, we're going to go through the message canon as uh, a class, God willing. And I tell you what, it's, it's so obvious. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. It is he. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high-minded ones of the day said, crucify him, which is also what the Bible said would happen. It's amazing. It truly is amazing that the one that revealed is humble. And the way he revealed himself to be, you will recognize him because of that humility. You are living epistles in this world. The church of Jesus Christ is meant to be that word of God animated afresh. The word of God is supposed to live within us and come out of us. How will we recognize that it is, in fact, the genuine Messiah inside of us? It'll be the same language. It will speak the same words. It will live the same life. So how does a word work? So it's an amazing thought to think that Jesus is a word that sounds like a massive diminishment to it, to him, but think about how a word works. Okay, I have something inside of me that is invisible. You cannot see it. It's called a thought. It's called a nature. It's called my very person. Okay, you can see what I look like, and you describe certain things to my physical body, but God is spirit. So everything about it is invisible, and no man has seen God. So he has something inside, just like you do. Your thoughts. I can't read your thoughts just by staring at you. And so what God seemed to create in his very way that he put this whole thing together was that that which is invisible could be revealed in and through what means? Language. We'll use the term word, since that's the word God uses. A word. And when I take a word that is common to you and common to me, and I take my thought, that which is inside of Eric that is unseen, and I package it all nice into a word, and then I shoot it out of this mouth. Patooey! And it goes flying through the air and in and through your ear canal. And then you go, oh, this is exciting. You unpack my word like it's a gift, a present. And you know what you see? You see that which is invisible. You understand it. You now know what was inside of me. You've actually read my thoughts. Isn't that incredible that a word translates something from the invisible into your realm, that you would know what was inside of me. I mean, it's called communication. It's called language. Now, we take language for granted, but Jesus Christ is actually termed the Word of God, which means when we know him, we know the invisible. We know that which is incomprehensible. I mean, we could never understand it. It's invisible. It's untouchable. It's unreachable. But Jesus has brought it to this earth and revealed it to us. He's the Word. Uh-huh. Now you're going to start appreciating your Bible a little more, too. We have that which is invisible revealed to us so that we can grasp, we can handle that which is invisible. God wants us to know him. 
It's an amazing thought. A brief introduction to the Word of God in text. So we call this the Scripture. The Bible is a newer term for it. Ironically, that's not what they called it back in ye olden days. That's a new term. Uh, However, it's a good term. It's a collection of 66 books written by over 40 authors over a couple thousand years. You know what? That's a hard book to put together. When you have no coordination seemingly amongst the people, you have kings all the way down to peasants that are writing this. And yet somehow every book is authorized and everyone knows this is the word of God. How did that happen? Well, I'm not going to talk about the history of how the Bible was put together. That's for a different time, a different message. But to understand how the flow of the process worked. So the date, 3760 B.C., So this is 3,700 years before Christ. You know, most of us don't think about it this way, but that's when the heavens and the earth were created. It isn't that long ago. You know, when you look at it like that, it's like, huh? Well, I I thought that was way, way, way back then. I mean, well, that is way, way, way back then. But it's not as far back as you'd think. And of course, you talk to an evolutionist, and they're like laughing at that. I mean, that's, that's like nothing. I mean, we haven't even done anything yet. How could you ever explain any of this? Well, you don't have to explain it through evolution. You explain it through creation. That's how. Yeah, my message isn't on that, but might as well throw that in for good measure. So, you know that we did not have a Bible on this earth? The scriptures were not here in written form for the first 2,447 years. That's a long time without any text revelation and God had it in mind to bring about a salvation to his people so right around 1313 BC the Bible begins so that's not that long ago I mean if you think about it I mean we were only 2,000 years since Christ I mean this is only 1300 years before Jesus that the Bible actually began to be written and you know how it started being written? By God. It was the finger of God. It's a strange thought to think that the Ten Commandments was how God started out the Bible. But, in essence, that's what, how it started. God wrote something. And he imparted to Moses something on that same mountain. Moses up there 40 days. What's he getting? He's getting some revelation. Why? How do I know that? Because God, from that point on, keeps saying, Moses, I want you to build this tabernacle in accordance with what I showed you when you were on that mountain. And we're like, yeah, what was that? He's like, well, he showed it to me. Well, what else did he show you? Well, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. You can start to get a clue of what God showed to Moses. Okay, so the finger of God is sort of how this thing starts. We're kicking off this Bible with God saying, finger to stone. And he's revealing something. What's he revealing? His perfect righteousness. It's called the law. You see, God is holy, and he is completely unlike us. However, we don't realize that. We think we're fine. We think everything we do is just appropriate. And so what he does is he says, you know what? You have to understand some bad news before you can truly understand the good. You need to recognize your sin so that you recognize that you need a Savior. The law was given to acquaint us with the fact that we are not like God. Something is twisted and wrong in us that begins to be enunciated throughout Scripture as sin. 
You know that the word holy actually has no validity in all of God's creation unless there is sin that enters into the world? Because God has to say, look, I'm not like you. That's what holy is. I'm other than you. I am holy. You are not. And as a result, the law was what was explaining that. This is holy behavior. Your behavior stinks. It is not holy. But unless you are like me, you can have no part with me. And so, ha, this is a weight. This is, this is a burden. It's awakening. It's a servant. It's a teacher that's saying, I love you too much to leave you this way. However, I'm not going to just condemn you. I've given you a Messiah. I have a solution for you. And the Lord said unto Moses, come up to me in the mount and, there, and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and law and commandments, which I have written. Isn't that just an amazing thought? To think that, yes, we know the Bible is written by people, by men. I mean, Moses wrote the first five books. However, it's also called the Word of God, and it's a great mystery. Because people nowadays will say, it's men that wrote the Bible. And then I come back and I say, but it's God's Word. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense. Well, think about Jesus Christ, the Word of God in flesh. Is he God or not? Because he's also a man. He's 100% man, and yet he's God. That's the same mystery of the Word of God in text. It's written by men, yes, but it's 100% God. So these tables of stone are actually written by God. I mean, that's one of the coolest things I've ever heard. That thou mayest teach them. And he gave unto Moses when he made an end of communion with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. Oh, that is amazing. Doesn't it make you even appreciate the Ten Commandments? It's like, wow. Those were literally written by God's finger on tables of stone, and I can read them today. I know most of us are like, I don't like those commandments. I'm saved from those commandments. You know what those commandments do? Is they show you your need of a Savior. They're a gift of grace. Because they still are the perfect righteousness of God. God didn't change. It's not like he said, oh yeah, it doesn't matter now. Now that uh, Jesus has come and died on the cross, yeah, you can put as many gods before me as you want. You see, everything about that law is still the righteousness of God. However, you are no longer judged under a law, human commandments. You have been given the higher law of grace. And as a result, you are judged in Jesus Christ. And he was without sin. And he perfectly measures up to that law. The book commissioned by God. So how did the Bible originate? We know that God wrote these Ten Commandments. Okay, so we see that. But then how did the rest of the Bible begin to form? And the Lord said unto Moses, write this for memorial in a book. And rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. You know one of the things that really bothers me is these archaeologists and historians that say, I don't think uh, that even writing existed in the days of Moses. Like, that is pathetic. Okay? Uh, could you imagine? It's, uh, you know, God's like, yeah, write this. And Moses is like, write? He looks over at Joshua and goes, write? What does that mean? And the Lord said to Moses, write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord and unto all the elders of Israel. What you're seeing is you're beginning to see that what the Bible is is actually 
commissioned by God. He says, look, we're going to put together a book. God is sponsoring this. Not only with his own finger is he enunciating a law, but now he's actually commissioning the writing of a book. Pretty exciting beginnings. So I'm going to build, I think it's around 13 truth points about the Bible. Key point number one, the Bible is God's idea. It is not man's idea where man says, you know what, we should put together a book. This just sort of chronicles all the things that we've ever heard or whispers of or maybe assume could be God. The Bible started as God's commission. God is the one that purposed it. God had it in mind to do this. Number two, the Bible is God's word. I know there's debate on these points, but it's ridiculous debate. It's very clear that the Bible is God's word. The Bible itself makes it very clear that it was the Holy Spirit that carried along these writers to enunciate his word and his revelation. It wasn't the revelation of men. It was the revelation of God come to men to write down. And God says, write this down in a book. And then he goes to the next guy. Write this down in a book. Write this down in a book. This is God's word. God bequeathing, conveying his revelation to men so that they could enunciate it on this earth. So a glossary. The word of God is the revelation of God's nature, his purpose, his promises, his plan, his person. The scriptures are the word of God written down and preserved with the utmost care. So when you call the scriptures the word of God, it's still accurate. I don't like it when people say, no, no, the scriptures are scriptures. You can't call them the word of God. It's like, no, 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 no. The scriptures are the word of God, okay, in textual form. Let's be very clear on that. The Bible, the canon, the Old Testament, the New Testament are the same as the scriptures, by the way, which is the same as the word of God. However, it's a unique enunciation and it's a terminology issue. But these are the 66 individual books of scripture organized into one grand, unchanging, timeless, living volume. And the way that this is organized has changed over time, but the books themselves are the same. Okay, and that's another thing to understand. Like, for instance, the Jews organize those same books different. So they don't count 66 books. They would count 24 in the Old Testament. And so 24, we have 39. What's wrong? Well, they're the same books, though. For instance, First and Second Samuel, to us, are two different books. We count them as two. To them, they call it Samuel. It's two books combined. Chronicles is two books to us, First and Second. Kings, two books to us. Guess what? They combine them. To them, we have, we have 12 minor prophets, each individual books. We count 12. They count one. It's called the Treasar, the 12. And so they include all 12 in one book called the Treasar, which means the 12. And so, same books. Don't panic over these things. Simply a different organization of it. Jesus is the word of God become human. God with us, walking on two feet. The two testaments, or covenants. So when you hear the word testament, most of you may not understand what that means, a testament, but it's a covenant. And maybe you don't know what a covenant is, but it is a binding, sharing, cutting, there's different terms for it, of entering into an inviolable relationship. Like a marriage, a marriage is a symbol of covenant. The way, reason we even have marriage on this earth is as a symbol of that heavenly relationship that we have with God, in and through covenant. So, 66 books divided into two sections 
or two covenants, or two testaments. There's a reason why I'm building this, is because I want to show you how the Bible is put together, even to reveal Jesus, okay? And that is, it's divided into two sections. We all know this, too. I mean, all you have to do is hang out with the Bible a little, and you begin to realize, well, there's an old, and there's a new. There's a first, and there's a second. First covenant, second covenant. This is very important to us. You have the Old Testament and you have the New, and there's two. And they have the same message, yes, but the way in which they approach that message is slightly different. The Old Testament is the first 39 books, and the New Testament is the final 27 books. The first 39, tested and proven. So when we're talking about the first 39, you know that when the New Testament is even writing and it uses the term scripture, it's referring to the first 39 books? That's what it's referring to. The words of the Lord, or the word of God, as we're describing here, the words of Jehovah, because Lord all capitalized, is talking about the unspeakable, ineffable name of God, Jehovah. So the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. It's basically saying... The word of the Lord that has been revealed to us are pure words. There is no tainting. There is no mixture. There's no flesh in them. They are spirit born. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. They've been worked. They've been refined. They've been heated. They've been tried. They've been tested. And guess what? They passed. All scripture is God breathed. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, which means is God breathed, is breathed out by God, and is profitable for doctrine. Do you remember how I enunciated how a word works? It's like you have a thought and then boom, patooey. It's the breath of God. It literally is the speaking of God. How did God create the heavens and the earth? He spoke. You know what it says in the entire New Testament? Who created the heavens and the earth? It says Jesus Christ. The word of God created the heavens and the earth. Isn't that a strange statement? Because all of us would say, well, God created the heavens and the earth. That's right. And you do know that Jesus Christ is God, don't you? You see, there's an enunciation. It's actually God in substance, actually speaking, breathing. And that breath, that word, that expression is known as the word of God. It's Jesus. It came out of God, begotten of God that would reveal who God is, what God is thinking, what his plans, his purposes are. And we realize that he loves us. It's an amazing thing what enunciates, and we look at that. It could be scary to look at. Could you imagine? We're like, we have the revelation of God here. Who wants to look first? Because what could the revelation of God be? You're dead. Ah! Instead, what do we see? I love you. What? I love you so much that I'm going to send my only son to die for you. Uh, Is this serious? Is that true? The revelation of God is so bewildering. So what is it good for? What is this God-breathed scripture good for? It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The story of the rods, one rod to rule them all. Well, so tomorrow, God willing, we'll be going through canon in class. Uh, And so canon is built upon a story. It's the very beginnings of the word of God. God is establishing authority in Israel. And he's doing that authority in and through the Levitical line, which will be the caretakers for the scriptures of the word of God. And so who's in charge of Israel at the time? Moses and Aaron. 
And so the heads of the Levitical line, and Aaron is literally considered the chief of the Levitical line, Moses being over all of them, ironically, their brothers, both Levites. But what happens in Israel is there's a rebellion, and it's called the Korah Rebellion, where a guy named Korah and his cronies decide they don't want to listen to Moses and Aaron. And so they're creating all sorts of contention, saying, who are you to put yourself over us? Well, did Moses and Aaron put themselves over them, or did God put Moses and Aaron over? It was a question of authority. It's the same question that exists today, where we say, what is the word of God? Why is it any better than uh, any Islamic literature or any Hindu book? Why is it any better? Why should I submit to this? It's the same exact question of the history of the word of God. And what we understand is canon stems from this story. So to solve this debate, God gives Moses a very specific task. He says, gather all the rods up amongst the leaders of Israel. So every tribe, there's 12 tribes, had a chief. And every chief has a rod. A rod is a symbol of authority. And so each of these chiefs are supposed to submit their rod unto Moses. And then he was going to set these 12 rods into the tabernacle of witness overnight. And God will speak as to who has the authority. This is how it started. This is literally how the Bible's authority begins, right here, with a weird story like this of rods. You know what rod means? Canon. That's what a canon is. It's a rod. And so Aaron's rod, has each one of these rods has the name of the chief on it. And Aaron's rod for the house of Levi has Aaron written on it. And overnight, in the, in the morning, they pull out these rods, and what do they find? Aaron's rod has budded. It's blossomed, and get this, it bore almonds overnight. And God says this is a token against the rebels. God's saying, I have made my statement clear. I am showing you who has authority. I, God says, I have established authority in Israel. You submit. If you do not submit to it, well, bad things happen. You know what happened? The ground opened up and swallowed the entire rebellion whole. Uh-huh. The ground opened up and swallowed them. You see, to defy the clear word of God, what Moses symbolized was the word of God. And then all throughout the history, that's what the word of God has been called, the canon. The canon of God, that which bears evidence and has the seal of God upon it, we submit. We bend our knee. It has divine right to rule and control our life. One rod to rule them all. Sounds like a movie line. (laughs) Key point number three. The Bible is tested and proven. It's tried. It's been found true. The Bible is divinely authoritative. The Bible perfectly agrees with itself. One of the principles of how canon works is it's a measuring rod. And so we get a a rod, and it measures this exact distance. Now, every additional rod that is going to be measured, to be added to the scriptures, has to be measured against the existing canon. So Moses' first five books are the foundational rod. So when Joshua, the book of Joshua is written, what does it have to do? It has to prove to be perfectly in agreement. You see, every rod, do you know what kind of uh, tree uh, Aaron's rod was cut from? An almond tree. Okay, so that means every other rod that is going to be measured has to bear the same fruit. So when it's tested, what kind of fruit would it produce? Almonds. So if it's producing oranges, it does not mean 
that it's just a bad raw that needs to go to hell. It's just not divinely authoritative. It doesn't, it's not divinely inspired. It's not the word of God. But if it proves the same wood grain, it, produ it produces the same fruit, and it has the exact measurement. It agrees with itself. It's from the same tree. It has the same root. Hey, this is, this is canon. And so all throughout history, what you see is the Bible perfectly agrees with itself, which is why when the debate over the apocryphal books in, uh, you know, I don't know what the dates were. I should have checked that before I made some statement on it. But when one of the popes from the Catholic system actually declared, hey, this is canon. The Bible isn't declared canon by an individual man. It's declared canon by the obvious testation of God before his people. Always has been. And the apocryphal books even are rejected by the Jews. They're written by Jews. And the Jews say, no, that's not canon. And so what we have is something that doesn't agree. It actually isn't the same wood grain. It is, they're amazing books. You know, if you read the apocrypha, there's some wonderful books. But they're not divine. And so as a result, the understanding of the history of how the Bible is put together is based on measurement. It has to agree. If it contradicts, hey, it's not part of the Bible because God doesn't uh, speak one thing out of one side of his mouth and another out the other. The first and the second. So remember I said there's two covenants? The first and the second, as many of the students here know, because I've been going through it quite a bit in the past two weeks, is an understanding of the framework of how God built the Bible. The Bible says the same message all throughout. There's always a first and there's always a second. There is a first and there is a second. So Cain and Abel. Well, that Adam and Eve had more than just two sons? There was obviously someone to marry out there. However, we know about these two because the two is very important. That they're at enmity with each other. They're hostile towards each other. And God cannot accept the gift of the first, but he does accept the gift of the second. It's the second one that pleases God. God is showing that in the two, whenever two are given, the first one is of the flesh. It is unable to please God, but the second one is of the Spirit. And what it offers pleases God. Okay, now if you look at the two covenants, the first covenant can't save you. The second covenant has salvation in it. And so you're going to see this all throughout Scripture. Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, the firstborn cannot please God. It's born of the flesh. And Isaac, the second, the one born of promise, is who God chooses. Esau and Jacob, two twins in the room, the first, two, two twins in the womb, sorry. And when they are born, Esau is born first, and Jacob is born second. And God doesn't accept Esau. He's the hairy hunter. He's self-sufficient, everything that we would esteem. And yet God says, no, it's the second one, the plain man dwelling in tents that he chooses. Manasseh and Ephraim, the second born, is the one that is chosen. Saul and David... The second one is the better man. The second one is the man after God's own heart. The first one is rejected. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Old covenant and new covenant. Flesh and spirit. Adam and Jesus. So you have the first man. There's a lot of men in between. Adam and Jesus. But it's called Adam and then the last Adam is Jesus. And the first Adam failed. He failed at the tree. The second Adam succeeds. The first Adam was supposed to lay down his life for his bride. When it was discovered that Eve had eaten of the fruits, what should the first Adam have done as the priest of Eden? Eve. Eve! What have you done? And instead of turning to Eve to try and just hear her words, 
he turns unto God. And he says, God, my wife has sinned. She has violated your covenant. And, and God would say, she must die. And then Adam would say, I understand you are a just God. But is there any other way? You die for her. You see, the first Adam did not stand in the position of righteousness. He sinned along with Eve. So instead of laying down his life for his bride, he gave up God for his bride. The second, Adam succeeded. He gave his life up for his bride so that she might live. The first will initially appear stronger, but in the end it will be proven to be the weaker. This is going to be a very important concept in this message. The first will initially appear stronger, but in the end it will be proven to be the weaker. The second, on the other hand, will at first appear weaker, but in the end it will prove to be the stronger. The elder shall serve the younger. The first shall submit to the second. So what we have in Genesis 25 is Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, is pregnant. And she has two children in her womb. This is just like you, by the way. This is how the Christian life actually works. You have a work of grace at large and working within you, but there is a resistance to it. You see, Saul had 21 assassination attempts on David. The first king does not want the second to live. And so you see it even in the womb. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. That's the word of God on the matter. The first, though it will appear stronger, in the end will serve the second. You are born and you are of the flesh, is what the scriptures say. You're under the principle of sin. It's called the body of death. And your body of death is an enmity with Jesus Christ. You don't want to hear about him. You don't want to submit to him. You don't want to have anything to do with that. And then, guess what happens? Something wins inside of you. And here you are, submitted. Your old man is put aside, and now something new is ruling within you called the Spirit. God is right. The elders shall serve the younger. Your old man, your old life, will become subservient to a new man, a new creature known as Jesus Christ. And in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Esau and Jacob. So we have a first and a second. The hairy hunter and the plain man dwelling in tents. Then we have Adam and Jesus. The first and the second. The man of earth and the man of heaven. Ironically, the name Adam means red. That's what his name means. Red, like clay, like dirt. And Jesus, you know what he is? When he went to battle, when he went to serve his bride, he was red. But it's a red of heaven. You see, Adam is of the earth, earthy. But the second man is also red, but he's red of a different nature. Passion, love, the heart. And he gives up his life and sheds his blood. Both of them are red. Both of them. However, one is the red of heaven that saves. 1 Corinthians 15, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. In other words, that which came first is the natural or the flesh or the earthy. But that which came second is spiritual. And afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. 
As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. There's a first and a second. You are told to put off the first and put on the second. You are told to repent of the first and get into the second. You see, there's two houses. There's two trees. There's two trees in the garden. The first tree and a second tree. The first tree, the day in which you eat of it, you will surely die. The second tree, Calvary, the cross, the day in which you believe, you will live. It's just amazing. It truly is. And the second is greater. Even though you failed at the first tree, the second one is a higher law that can overcome your weaknesses at the first tree. This very book that declares this truth is supernaturally built to demonstrate this truth. So you have a first and a second, you have an old covenant, and you have a new covenant. And this very book itself reveals this concept. The first is Adam. It's Adam's lineage. That which comes forth out of Adam, that which is under judgment, that which cannot please God, that which has been given the standard of God but cannot keep that standard, that which needs a savior. And the second one is a whole new lineage. It's the lineage of one known as Jesus Christ. What does it start with in the New Testament? Genealogy. Isn't that an amazing thought? It starts with genealogy? Genealogy of who? Just some random character? No, no, no. The one who saves. The one who this entire first book speaks of. So that's what it actually says. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. What book? Well, the one Moses is writing down. You see, the law. The law and the prophets. They speak of something. What are they speaking of? The one to come. However, we first need to go through the lineage of earth. This is where earth has brought us. This is where it's left us. We are crying out for salvation. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And how does Matthew 1.1 start? But the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the first book starts, this is the descendancy of Adam. This is what Adam can do. Adam needs a savior. The second book starts with that savior. The second one is greater. Key point number six, the Bible witnesses of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Bible points to the second. It begs a second. Everything says, unless you have the second, you don't have life. Think not that I am come to destroy the law. This is Jesus speaking. Or the prophets. He's not coming to destroy the old. The old points to him. So what does he say? I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You see, it all points to me. It all speaks of me. So if I were to eradicate that testimony, you wouldn't recognize me, says Jesus. The whole point of that Old Testament, though, is to show Jesus. So as a result, he didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Jesus has been raised from the dead. On the third day, just as he spoke, and now he's walking with disciples, but they don't recognize him. He's in a new body. It's a strange story. I have to agree. It's odd that they can't recognize who he is. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Who opened their understanding? Jesus. To understand what? The scriptures. You know what the scriptures are. It's the word of God in text. It's the first 39 books. They didn't understand it. You see, you cannot understand the first and the mystery hidden in the first without the second. The second one is the key. The second one is the answer. 
And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I mean, what? Jesus, you were just born. Uh, I mean, could you imagine the disciples? They could say, you were just born 33 years ago. How could you say that all of this is about you? You see, Jesus isn't just some ordinary man. He is before the scriptures. He is God. And he created the heavens and the earth. He set the stage of time. He enunciated in and through the revelation of the word of God, which is him, unto the prophets, unto Moses, a revelation of who? Himself. So that when he came, he would be known. He'd be manifest. He could be believed upon. The witness of the 39. So the first 39 books are a witness. And they testify to something. What are they testifying of? That when he comes, he will look like this. When he comes, he will talk like this. When he comes, he will do these exact things. Well, if the one that comes doesn't do those things, what should you think about him? He's not the Messiah. He's a false prophet. And the Bible itself says stone him. So if Jesus doesn't measure up to the test, he actually does not deserve your worship. He does not deserve your faith. But if he does, he's your Messiah. And he deserves everything. Search the scriptures for in them... You think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. He says, search the first 39 books, for in them you think you have eternal life. You think your life is found in having text. What's the good of text if you don't know what it's pointing towards? Could you imagine driving on the road trying to find Windsor, and you find the sign that says Windsor this way? So you pick it up, you take it home, stick it on your wall, and someone says, did you ever arrive in Windsor? Well, yeah, I have the sign for Windsor. It says point this way. That's all it's doing. It's pointing you to where it is. How would you like to have a treasure map that points to the X that marks the spot un unheard of treasure? It's there. And that treasure map points it to you. Stick it in your pocket, fold it up, go home, and someone says, didn't I hear that you got a treasure map? Yeah, true. So where's the treasure? Right there. You think the treasure map is your treasure? The treasure map leads you to the treasure. And who's the treasure? It's not text. It's a person. That person is the one that saves, not the text. Did you actually think it was a map that, got you, that was treasure? That map is only valuable to the point that it leads you to the treasure. That's why we give our life to defend that map. Because it's the one thing that leads us to the treasure. So I'll read it again so you can see that. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. Brace yourselves, listen to this line. For he wrote of me. Moses? Mo, Mo, Jesus, you were just born 33 years ago. What do you mean he wrote of you? Don't you understand how the scriptures work? It's the word of God. And the word of God is a revelation of the person of the word of God in flesh known as Jesus Christ. Everything about the scriptures points to Jesus. Everything. The law and the prophets testify. It is he. This is the one we saw. You see, over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we have an understanding of a revelation. But these men that wrote down the Old Testament actually were never able to look upon it they were able to see as they saw men as trees walking. You know that man who was healed of being blind? The first time he was touched, he could see, 
but not very clearly. And that's the way the Old Testament is. It's the first touch of God. And as a result, we're healed and we can see something, but we're like, so how are you doing? I, I see a whole bunch of men walking around, but they look like trees walking around. Uh-huh. That's the Old Testament without Jesus. You stick Jesus in the lock of the Old Testament and suddenly you're healed. And you can see the whole thing. Oh, this is all about Jesus. I mean, it actually said that a thousand years before he did it. A thousand years in such granular detail of what would happen. That's amazing. This is all about him. The Mount of Transfiguration. I don't know how many of you have ever studied the Mount of Transfiguration. It's an odd story, but there's so many odd stories. And we oftentimes sort of put it over here and go, yeah, that happened. All right, okay. Okay, so Jesus is with his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, on a mountain. We don't even know what mountain it was. And what shows up on the mountain to join Jesus? But uh, Moses and Elijah? Okay. Uh, aren't they dead? I mean, what's this? Jesus is transfigured. He turns a bright white in front of them. And then this in the cloud above them comes a booming voice of God, solidifying. There's a witness of three in this situation. Who's the witness? You have God in the cloud. That's important. Then you have Moses, who's symbolic of the law. And then you have Elijah, the chief prophet. You have the law and the prophets and the word of God, the booming voice of heaven, actually stating, this is he. Whoa. The entire 39 are saying, guys, we've got him. Everything that has been done up to this point is to reveal this. Here he is. And so you have three of a heavenly order witnessing, which is the word of God witnessing, the law, the prophets, God himself. And then you have three in the natural, Peter, James, and John, the testimony of three witnesses. We have established something in heaven and on this earth that he is in fact that Messiah we've awaited. The odd question of our day. So as we get to the makeup of the Word of God, which is the whole point of actually what I wanted to talk with you about today. All of this to say there's two. And the second one looks weaker. You know that it's interesting when you look at the two Testaments, the first Testament is actually very powerful. It's, first of all, it's written in Hebrew, and Hebrew is a very profound language. The depth and the mystery of that language can intoxicate people to the point where they get so lost in the Hebrew that they forget what the Hebrew is about. I mean, it's weird. It happens even in our day. You have a whole bunch of communities of, of church people that are actually so caught up in the law that they forget what the Bible is all about. It's about Jesus. And I'm, if any of you understand that or have been close to that, you know exactly what I mean. It's weird. It's intoxicating. Okay? It's a firstborn. And it has an appeal to even our flesh for high intellectualism. And so as a result, when we encounter the first, what do we see? We see a nation triumphing over other nations, trouncing them under their feet. We see a David who is going out to battle and destroying the Philistines, slaughtering the Amalekites. We're like, yeah! And so what it does, if you respond to the scriptures in the wrong way, what does it do when you anticipate a Messiah? Kill him! And he comes humble as a lamb unto slaughter? That's not my Messiah. You see, when you begin to realize... The New Testament at first looks weak. Old Testament, fight them! Second one, your, your battle is not against flesh and blood. Bend your knee, stretch out your neck as a sheep. 
You see, you're surrounded. You are a sheep unto slaughter. You will be persecuted. What? I don't want that. Give me the old. Give me the brawn and the boldness and the growl of the old. Oh, it's still there. However, the Old Testament's miracles, parting Red Seas, feeding nation, a nation for 40 years in the wilderness. I mean, these are massive things. And the New Testament, yeah, we got the multiplication of fishes and loaves, a little walking on water, dead man raised. But have you seen the Old Testament? I mean, that is extraordinary. Same God. However, the revelation is very purposeful. You went from the high-minded, the beautiful Hebrew to, excuse me, the Greek, the Koine Greek. That's a dog's language. So let's walk through this. The odd question of our day. I was at a festival speaking, and I got done and was in the, behind a book table, and this is what happened. Hey, you're a pastor, right? Yes, I am. Good. Maybe you can give me an answer to my question. No other pastor has been able to give me a satisfactory answer. Well, I'll, I'll try. When you were up on that stage, you said the name Jesus when talking about Yeshua, the Messiah. How can you explain why you would call him Jesus when his name is rightly Yeshua? He was a Hebrew man with a Hebrew name, not a Greek man with a Greek name. I'd, and then this is my answer. I'd love to answer that question. Now, I'd like to answer it for you as well. See, there's a whole lie going around that Jesus is a derivative of perversion of the word Zeus. And that it actually is not his name. And so we are blaspheming God by even calling him by this pagan name. Uh, that is absolutely ridiculous. His name is in the Hebrew Yeshua, and very likely his mother even called him that. Because that's what she named him. She could have had a nickname like Yeshi or something. I don't know. <laughs> but it was Yeshua. However, the New Testament is written in Greek. Let me ask you a question. Who carried along the writers of the New Testament to write it? God himself. And in the Greek, he's called Isus. And the Greek has no J sound. So when you take that and turn it into a alliteration into our language, in the English, you would stick a J there. And what does it become? Jesus. Hmm. That's right. <laughs> it is not a perversion of it. It is actually a word-for-word -word keeping, the best we know in the English language. But what you're going to see is a battle over this one issue, and it's called a spurning and a despising of the second. God chose Koine Greek, not man. God chose to write a book, not man. God proves his word, not us. We submit, and we say, God, this is a strange way to save the world. Whoa, God, a baby? Shepherds? Uh, tax collectors? Fishermen? Oh, no, no, no. I can't accept this model. You're going to recognize the model of Jesus Christ and how he reveals himself to others is not accidental. It is in accordance with his very nature. As hard as this is to sometimes swallow, he is humble. It's because we are not that we struggle with it. The two languages. Hebrew, the first, Harry. Greek, the second, plain. See, many of you may not understand languages, so you don't really understand how the Koine Greek would offend the Jew. 
It's like, no way. That's a Gentile dog's language and tongue. If God is going to reveal his word, he's not going to use that. He's going to use his own native tongue, which, of course, is Hebrew. The Old Testament. It's the generations of Adam, the patriarchs, the mighty power, the grand kingdom, the glistening temple, the Hebrew. Now, how about the New Testament? The generations of a carpenter from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's the motley band of fishermen and tax collectors, the betrayal, the scourging, the reviling, the crucifixion, the death, the Greek. Who wants that? Give me the old. You will not find life in the old. You can only find it in the new. You have to humble yourself. You have to humble your high-mindedness and stoop low to recognize what God is speaking here. The first and the second. Hebrew, the uncommon language. You see, it's the only the Hebrews that knew how to speak the Hebrew. So it's only them that knew the word of God. And as a result, it was kept from all the Gentile nations. It was that treasure, and they would give their life to protect it. And the Greek, it's the common language. No, 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 not in the Greek. Understanding terms. So let's go through a history real quick. This is just to sort of speed you up. This is really hard to do this all in one message, but we are. Right around 2348 BC, Noah enters the ark and shuts the door along with his three sons, Japheth, Shem, and Ham, and their wives. Shem, the son of Noah, is the father of the Shemites, which makes sense, but we know him throughout history as the Semites. So if you've ever, ever heard of anti-Semitism, that would be the line of Shem. And so what we have is the Hebrew people are coming out of the line of Shem, out of that ark. And then Abraham, who's of Shem, is called the Hebrew, which simply means the one from the other side. He wasn't originally from Canaan. He came from another land. Don't miss that. You see, the Messiah who's going to come is the one from the other side. And so this lineage is a prophetic lineage of the one who's to come. And even the word Hebrew means the one from the other side. Isaac is one from the other side. He's known in scripture and to the surrounding nations as a Hebrew man. So he's one from the other side. He is set apart. He is holy. He's not like this land that he has entered. Jacob is where a new name is brought in. Yes, he's a Hebrew man. But when he wrestles with God, I'll just read it, became Israel, the one who wrestles with God and overcomes. His name became the name of the lineage of the Hebrew people. So this is where the name Israel comes in. Israel is a Hebrew uh, who is of the lineage of Shem, who is, of course, of Adam. And then Jacob's 12 sons, one of which is named Judah, are known as the Israelites. So Jacob is known as Israel, and then his descendants are known as Israelites. You always stick an ite on the end when you have your lineage in your new little nation that is forming. Uh, Joshua, so I, I mentioned up there that one of the 12 sons is named Judah. Of course, that becomes important as we progress. But Joshua, who's the second, you have Moses and then you have Joshua, and Moses can't take them into the land of promise. Who can? Joshua, which is, happens to be the name Yeshua, the same name as Jesus. Joshua is, is the head or the, uh, the leader of the nation of Israel. So Israel now is becoming a nation. And then Saul is the first king of Israel. So then, when we have Saul's death, we have a split in the kingdom, and Judah and a little tribe of Benjamin actually say, we, 
nominate David. We, we will anoint David as our king. But the other ten tribes do not accept that, and that's what's known as the kingdom of Israel, is the other ten tribes. So you have the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, but then David becomes king of the united twelve tribes again. Solomon, who's the son of David, is the king of Israel, the united kingdom. Then we start to get a little confusing for some of us because we have the kingdom of Israel, which has a different capital than uh, Jerusalem. What is this? It's Samaria? How does this work? After David, uh, I'm sorry, after Solomon, because of Solomon's sin, God strips a portion of the kingdom from Solomon's son and his son's And so Rehoboam is in the lineage of Solomon and actually has the kingdom of Judah, which also includes Benjamin. And so then you have to the north what we call the kingdom of Israel. So this is the season of the split kingdom in Israel. So Jeroboam, but when I say Israel, technically I could mean the whole, but I also could mean the ten tribes to the north. That's why it can be a little confusing. The Assyrians take the kingdom of Israel prisoners. Israel, the northern kingdom, is no more and still is no more. They're called the lost tribes of Israel. So the Assyrians actually have taken, it took the ten tribes to the north. The Babylonians take the kingdom of Judah prisoners. The Jews are carted away to Babylon. Now you notice I said Jews. Where does that term come from? The Jews come from Judah. And so the kingdom of Judah is where the Jews were. And where did Jesus come from? He came from the tribe of Judah. And so as a result, these lower two kingdoms are actually the kingdom through which Jesus will be revealed, and they're known as the Jews. So the Jews, those of Judah, that practice Judaism. The New Testament is Jesus Christ, a descendant of Judah, and the king of Judah, David, known as the king of the Jews. So even on his uh, sign above the cross, it says the king of the Jews, and he is. His father was in the lineage of the kings. He inherits the kingdom of Judah. It's really amazing. So he's the king of the Jews. Christians, those of Jesus who practice Christianity. We don't practice Judaism. We practice Christianity. Gentiles are called non-Jews. Okay, that's a very simple way of understanding it. They're the ones that are non-Jews. A Jew isn't saved by being a Jew. Okay, now Jews don't really like it when I say this. However, this is just the facts. A Jew isn't saved by being a Jew. A Jew is saved by believing in Christ Jesus the same way every Gentile is saved. You see, there is one means of salvation, and your heritage, your nationality is not one of them. Even though you may be a Jew, you are not saved by being a Jew. And so this is where some of the contest comes in when it comes to the Word of God. The Word of God is right. And a Gentile can be saved as any Jew simply by believing in Christ Jesus, the one that everything the Jews believe pointed to, ironically. The Hebrew word... So we have the first 39 books, and we could call it the Hebrew Word. It is the Word of God revealed unto the Hebrews to showcase the person of Jesus Christ. So with all its brilliance, it still remained a mystery to the Jews. It needed a key to unlock it. You know that this book is so high. The Old Testament is so amazing. There's still, I mean, I will read through passages in that scripture, in the, in the Old Testament, and still just stare and go, God, I don't think I get this. I mean, I know a lot about Scripture, and I could stare at things. Now, it doesn't mean I couldn't give an educated guess. But if I'm going to be honest down there, it's like, this is a mystery, isn't it? But I know the mystery is solved in Jesus Christ. And so I keep pressing. I know I'll understand these things as I keep pressing. But without Jesus, it's just a mystery. I mean, that's all you have. You have a mystery, and you speak lofty words, and the Psalms all become poetry instead of prophecy, instead of promise. 
So Acts 8, we see this mystery, the Jew interacting with the Old Testament. And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace queen, Candace, queen of all the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. He's a Jew. It's a Jew from Ethiopia that has come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. So he's in the first 39. He's a Jew. He doesn't understand the Christ. He doesn't understand the fulfillment. He doesn't understand that Jesus Christ has rescued him. But he has the first 39. He's a genuine believer, if you want to say it that way, in, these, in this truth, in this scripture. But he doesn't understand it. So what does he need? He needs a key. He's reading Isaiah. Technically, he's reading Isaiah chapter 53. So the Spirit says unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you read? If someone only has the old... They only have the first 39. You could come to him and say, do you understand what you read? Listen to the guy's response. And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shear, so opening not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. That scripture was written 750 years prior to this moment. 750 years, those words had been hidden in the Hebrew word, guarded. Men would die to preserve the integrity of those words. And now here we come, a Jew in the wilderness, still lingering in the wilderness, never been able to cross into that land flowing with milk and honey. And he has the words of Scripture, but what does he need? He needs the life of Scripture. He needs the treasure. For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaks the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him, Jesus. You see, that's how you unlock the Old Testament. You preach from that point, Jesus, and you will understand the great mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. The makeup of the 66 books, the Old Testament, typically understood as the Law and the Prophets. They have wisdom writings as well. The first 39 books written in Hebrew and some Aramaic. Wherefore, the Law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. This is the first. What is the purpose of the first? To show you your need for a second. Very simply put. That which proves the power of sin demonstrates the weakness of the flesh and the inability of man to save himself. The law is a schoolmaster which showcases the need for a saving help from God. The law in and of itself cannot save. It can only lead to the one who can. It's God himself. The New Testament is the covenant of Jesus Christ or understood as grace. So law and grace, the first and the second. The final 27 books, and they're written in Koine Greek. That which proves the defeat of sin demonstrates the power of the Spirit and the ability of God to save man from his lifelong subservience to the control of the flesh. The New Testament is the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. The schoolmaster's thousand years. So when Moses wrote, did you know that it was a thousand years until what we could call the years of silence? Then that's what it covers. In the history of Israel, it's only a thousand years that the Bible covers. The Old Testament writings cover a stretch of time from Moses to the return of the Israelites and their captivity in Babylon. 
This is a span of approximately 1,000 years in which the nation of Israel demonstrated failure upon failure upon failure. They begged God to intervene and save them from the cyclical pattern of apostasy, turning away from the true God and going after false gods. Have you gotten the message yet? Do you realize that you need a savior? Because the entire history of those thousand years is only defeat. That's all they have to show for it. Four centuries of silence. So that's what follows. So we have our thousand years, and then we have these four centuries, or typically understood as the 400 years of silence. 400 years from Ezra's histories and Malachi's prophecies until John the Baptist. And what it says in Matthew 11 is, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. John is what was promised. There is a forerunner. There will be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He's coming. He will follow John. He will follow that advanced notice. I mean, this is literally, the whole Testament is building towards this. The Hellenization of the world, right at the same juncture of time, when we are going into years of silence, and the word of God seems to have stalled. It's like God has revealed himself, but now there's a silence, a waiting. Is he coming or not? In the world is a great movement, a shaking up. You guys remember uh, Alexander the Great in your historical studies? Uh Uh-huh, he's on the move. Ironically, he only was on the move for 12 years. His conquest was only 12 years, but he basically overcame the known world of the time. And what it brought about was Hellenization. Hellenization, if I were to describe Hellenize, it means the attempt to make someone Greek in thought, lifestyle, and speech. And I can tell you right up front, a good Jew is anti-Hellenization, just like a good Christian is anti-secularization. Okay? In other words, the Jews were right in opposing this because Greekness the celebration of humanity and the goodness of humanity is anything but biblical. Okay, so we have a threat to our society right now. The Hellenization is sweeping through and it's already begun to infect the Jews. Alexander the Great, from 335 B.C. to 323 B.C., the 12 years that changed the world and set the stage for the Gentiles to hear the word of God. What the enemy meant for evil, God turned to good. I mean, this is truly remarkable how God leverages this. After his father, King Philip of Macedon, was killed in 336 B.C., Alexander took the throne of Macedon at the age of 20. In 335, he headed out on an unprecedented military campaign through Asia and northeast Africa until by the age of 30, he had created one of the largest empires of the ancient world, stretching from Greece to Egypt and into present-day Pakistan. In his 12 years of conquest, he was undefeated in battle, and after his death at the age of 33, in 323 B.C., he had completely altered the known world, and the Hellenization began. The stage is set. It's the first time since Babel. That's a long time before. First time since Babel, one language had become common over most of the known world. God is setting the stage to be able to reveal his message to the Gentiles, to the entire world. Lingua franca, it simply means a bridge language used to make communication possible between persons not sharing a native language. For instance, the native, or I'm sorry, the lingua franca of our day-to-day is called English. You speak it. And as a result, you don't realize how valuable it is. It's just the language you speak. But say you're in a foreign country, and you talk to the person, and you say, do you speak Spanish? No. Do you speak French? No. Do you speak English? Yes. You find the language, and then you can talk. This is exactly the time period where suddenly, for the first time since Babel, you have a lingua franca, you have a common language to bind us. And in the Hellenization, everyone is being trained. 
in Koine Greek. Everyone, all business is being done in that. That's the only way you can deal with all these nations commonly. Koine Greek is the bridge language. The Alexandrian Jews in Egypt. So we have a troop of Jews in Egypt, known as the Alexandrian Jews, and Ptolemy, who was a predecessor to uh, the breakdown of Alexander's empire, is, makes a commission. Why he made this commission, his motivation behind the commission, I, you know, I can't answer for that. However, he wants the Hebrew 39 books of the Bible to be translated. Whoa, never done that. Uh, we don't take the precious Hebrew and turn it into any other language because there's only one language that matters. You've got to be kidding. We're not going to take the Hebrew language and turn it into a dog's language. For the first time in history, a commission to translate is initiated. All these rabbis, 70 of them, were selected. And probably under threat of death, they began the work. And because they take the word of God so seriously, they gave it their best shot. And they translated, for the first time in history, the old Hebrew into the Koine Greek. It's called the Septuagint, the LXX, which means the 70. From around 300 B.C. to 132 B.C., this was made. Now, that's a very awkward thing for many of us. We're like, what's that? I've never even heard of this. Some of you have heard the word, but you don't know what it is. For the first time in history, in 132 B.C., before Jesus, just 100 years before Jesus, we actually have, for the first time, the hidden words that were always in Hebrew, now suddenly there. So now anyone can test the Messiah. Think about it. Anyone can test the one who's to come. Because how are you going to know that he is? Around 132 BC, it happens. For the first time, the word of God is expressed in the language of the Koine, which means the common, the Greeks, the Gentiles. The great condescension. By the way, the Jews aren't very happy with this. Uh, their sacred word has been trampled upon by a Gentile tongue. How dare they even dream of speaking it in that dog tongue? That which is holy, untouchable, mysterious, and exclusive becomes uh, <clears throat> human and approachable, touchable, and available to uh, everyone, including the Gentiles. See, some of you could say, there's no way God would be happy about this. Oh, no way. God has to be upset. What does God think of the Septuagint? Isn't that just an odd thought? In fact, it makes some of us feel uncomfortable even asking the question. You know that we have an answer to it? It's not like God said, I love the Septuagint, like some endorsement on the back of the Bible. <laughs> well, the Holy Spirit, when carrying along the writers of the New Testament books, quotes from it, from the Septuagint. Did you just hear me correctly? Quotes from the Septuagint around 340 times in the New Testament canon as opposed to 33 times in the Masoretic or the Hebrew text. Uh, I would say that is an endorsement of what we could call translations. Isn't that amazing? He quoted from the Koine? Doesn't it feel a violation here? Spirit of God, his choice, not mine. It would appear that God is unashamed to speak in the Koine Greek. I'd say... Key point number seven, the Bible wasn't written accidentally, but very much on purpose. Key point number eight, the Bible is for all people. God is making that clear. 
God is showing us this word is not just for a limited group of people. It has been held and protected for such a time, but my desire is that all the nations would know. I have blessed Israel that they could be a blessing, not so that they could keep the blessing. This is the same truth that you need to understand in your Christian life. Do not function with a firstborn mentality towards the scriptures or towards the Messiah, but you must recognize that he humbled himself to give himself to you. Now you humble yourself to give him to the nations. The Bible is meant to be understood by all. Key point number 10. The Bible is translatable. I, I know. This is, I mean, people could debate this up one side and down the other. No, everyone needs to learn ancient Hebrew. Everyone needs to learn Koine Greek. Technically, the Bible is translatable. There's better ways to translate it than others, but God, in, even in through the process of the history of how the New Testament is formed by His Spirit, endorses a translation. Here's the twist. God's word becoming koine is utterly blasphemous to a good Jew. But this is exactly what God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ, did. And to a Christian, the fact that God's word became koine, or common, is the essence of the gospel. Jesus Christ came, and in a strange way, he came in Koine Greek. He came speaking a language that was common, that could be understood by all. And it was offensive to the Hebrew, offensive to the Jew. And yet it's the essence of the gospel to us. Most of us in here are Gentiles. And so as a result, we're not as offended over the Koine Greek. We're like, yay, Koine. The fact that Jesus was, spoke to us in and through Koine is our life. The Old Testament began around 1313 B.C. when the Word of God was written on a tablet of stone. Listen to this. The New Testament began around 80 A.D. Of course, we don't know the exact year in which Jesus was born, so that's a placeholder. As around 0 A.D. when the Word of God was conceived in the womb of a young girl and written on tablets of human life. The Old Testament begins with the story of creation. The New Testament begins with the story of the new creation. The Old Testament is about the generations of Adam, the firstborn, the dead in trespasses. The New Testament is about the generations of Jesus, the twiceborn, the resurrected. The tablets of God written stone were laid in an ark plated with gold. The word of God in flesh was laid in a feeding trough. The giving of the law took place on the very first Pentecost, and the great promulgation or the giving forth of the law of Moses began. The giving of the Spirit took place on the same day, nearly 1,350 years later, and the great promulgation or the giving forth of the gospel of grace began, same day. Isn't it an amazing thought to think that very possibly Pentecost could have even been a day in which God wrote with his finger on tablets of stone and gave the first teacher? And then 1,350 years or so later, we have the second Pentecost, the first and the second. Possibly even the same day. Knowing God's brilliance is probably something like that. The giving of the old covenant was on the untouchable and approachable mountain, presented in the language of Hebrew and for the Hebrew alone. The giving of the new covenant was in the midst of the crowded city, available to everyone the world over in their own tongue. Where was the new covenant made? On a cross in a public square. Isn't that an amazing thought? Technically, outside the city. Jesus, the living word. Christianity, the living epistle. Jesus is that scripture brought to life. He animates it. He lives it. But what are we? 
We are the living epistle, that which takes Jesus, the new covenant, the life in Christ, and brings it to life. And when we live, we are being measured against an existing word, just as the canon was. And when we don't measure, what happens? The Spirit of God gently convicts us and says, let's change that. So that our life would measure with the word of God and we would be a living letter. And just as Paul's letters were deemed canon, our life and our behavior could be deemed canon. That the world would see the clear word of God again, this time in the most shocking sense, in the common, the Gentile. That in us, the mystery of the heavenly realms would be revealed once again in a Koine Greek. It's amazing when God writes on human hearts. So there's an argument about what language God speaks. Believe it or not, people get into these arguments. So what is the native tongue of heaven? Like when you get to heaven, what are we going to speak? It's an interesting question. And so there's certain people that will make it very clear God speaks Hebrew. God's always spoken Hebrew. When, when Adam was created, he taught him Hebrew. And Adam named the animals in Hebrew. I'm not going to necessarily argue that. I don't even want to go there. I, I don't know that I know enough to either challenge it or support it. It really doesn't make that big of a difference to me. Does he speak Greek? Of course he does. It's the common language. You think we're all going to arrive in heaven and speak a language we don't know? First song out of the, you know, the blocks and hear everyone around us that knows Hebrew is singing all loud and we're like, trying to guess at it? Of course it's going to be Koine Greek. It's going to be a lingua franca. So then, of course, some people are like, it's going to be English, obviously, because he's coming soon. (laughs) I'm going to tell you the language that our God speaks. Humility. That's one thing we can know and we can back. When we get to heaven, we're going to hear his language afresh. It is an amazing thought to think that the high and holy almighty one who holds everything together in all this universe speaks a language so outrageously flabbergasting. He speaks humility, a language that most of us in this room may esteem from a distance but aren't willing to learn. And I want us to know that if God is at work in our life to reveal his word through us, he's not necessarily just going to teach us Hebrew and Greek. He's not just looking for scholars. He's looking for men and women who will bend low and who will allow his spirit to speak through their life that ancient message that he spoke. Key point number 11. The Bible answers all the Hebrew questions in Koine Greek. Every single question is answered in that new covenant. Everyone, God took a low language, humility, and answers all the high-minded questions. Who is this one who will be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem, whose goings forth are from of old and everlasting, who will be Emmanuel, God with us? Who is this one who will be betrayed by a friend, who will bear our iniquities, whose garments will be parted, whose hands and feet will be pierced? In the Koine Greek, we know the answer. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaks the prophet, this or of himself or of some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. In the Koine Greek, we have the answer given. Spargana'o, to wrap in swaddling clothes, omnipotence wrapped in weakness. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The word of God has come to you, people. You shall find this word wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. You shall find this word of God, this revelation of revelations, 
wrapped in Koine Greek. Amazing. Truly remarkable how God chose to do this. His choice, not mine. Let's understand that even the makeup of Scripture is teaching us something. God is speaking to us. Koine Greek? I mean, that's like the common tongue. That's like a rough-hewn language. Uh Uh-huh. He chose it. Key point number 12. Jesus, like the Bible, was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a feeding trough. So there's a lie going around that says the Bible, the New Testament was originally written in Hebrew and then translated to Greek. That's not true. You see, those that want to worship the first and want to stay in the first and want to be validated by the first are always going to come up with their reasons why the second is insufficient. Crucify him! And I'm here to tell you, God chose a common language. He was after more than just the Jews. He's after us. And we praise God for that. The gospel is revealed even in and through the language chosen to script the New Testament. Almighty strength discovered an earthly weakness. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. This is just his pattern. I'm going to reveal my strength, my greater covenant in and through weakness, in and through koine. Oh! Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Key point number 13, the Bible reveals to us a koine Jesus. A Jesus that is common for all of us. A Jesus that is available to all of us. It's not just hidden in a back room for the intellectuals to understand. But he's been revealed to the common. He has created a lingua franca, the church. That we can be human and frail and understand that dimension and yet take from the heavenly realms and reveal the word of God to this dying world. We are Koine Greek. We are weak and humble. And yet he has chosen this as his vehicle through which to carry his word into the world. A man who, though he was equal with God, humbled himself and took the form of a servant, became obedient unto death and a cross that he might be our common rescuer. A savior of all peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues. A redeemer of the lowly, the humble, the childlike. One willing to become the sacrifice, the food, and the clothing of a dying world. So let's go through our key truth points. Key truth point number one, the Bible is God's idea. The Bible is God's word. The Bible is tested and proven. The Bible is divinely authoritative. The Bible perfectly agrees with itself. The Bible witnesses of Jesus Christ. The Bible wasn't written accidentally, but very much on purpose. The Bible is for all people. The Bible is meant to be understood by all. The Bible is translatable. The Bible answers all the Hebrew questions in Koine Greek. Jesus, like the Bible, was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a feeding trough. And the Bible reveals to us a Koine Jesus. I don't want us to wait for a disaster in our life, a 9-11 to strike, a plane to go into the World Trade Towers before we start appreciating that which God has given us. You know how many people called home, uh, even though they weren't in New York City, and they just tell their parents, I I, I love you. I just, I haven't said it enough, but I want you to know I love you. Because you suddenly recognize the fragility of life and how precious those things are that we've been entrusted. You've been entrusted with the word of God in text and in person and in action. It's time to call home and let God know how much you appreciate it. You see, most of us know the value of this book, just like we know our parents are wonderful. But to actually go out of your way and not wait for a, for a plane to strike a World Trade Center before you wake up and start treating that which God has suffered and died 
to give you and take it seriously and hold on to it as if it's the most precious thing in your life. Men and women throughout history have died painful deaths so that you would have this scripture. Don't take it lightly. God has chosen a humble vehicle through which to reveal his love. I praise God for this message, for the language of humility that God has spoken to us and that he is asking us to speak to this world. If you are struggling in your life with being willing to do what the scriptures are saying, to be willing to come low, to be willing to be overlooked, this is where I want God to prick. I want God to touch our lives at the points where we, he came from way up to way down. We don't have that far to go. Are we willing to bend our knee before his word to start with, but also in recognizing the value of those around us? I'm here to serve. Jesus was laid in a feeding trough. God, when he came, that's how he came. I want to come to this world willing to give them my life, willing to serve, not biased against them because of their nationality, their race, but I want to give the way Jesus gave. It's an amazing picture. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.